Welcome to the Alchemy Archetypes and Ascension podcast. I'm your host, Jess Beard. I believe we can change the world if we all concentrate on ascending into the greatest versions of ourselves in this lifetime. All episodes and interviews are to inspire and educate us to transform. I want to explore spirituality, 5D and quantum shifting, health, mindset, business and more. If you need to transform any error in your life, then I want to be talking about it. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me for my latest episode. I have the incredible, beautiful Josie Jarvis joining me. She is a occupational therapist who helps people who are experiencing illness, injury, or disabilities to navigate major life transitions. She returned to academia in 2019, and while working on her doctorate, she discovered the power of occupational science and how it can help holistic empowerment and problem solving. So thank you so much for joining me, Josie. I think this is going to be such a a juicy conversation to have. Oh, thank you so much, Jess. I'm so excited to, to be here and just to have a conversation about this core human experience we all have of navigating change over time throughout development. We try as much as we can to have things go in a set predictable fashion. And usually life has other plans for us, I think. I was really so fascinated when I started to learn more about what you do. And I think there is a lot of people who are just like me, who are like, what is occupational science and how does it help people? So could you tell us a little bit more about it? For sure. Well, to answer the question of what is occupational science, you really have to start with asking a question of what is occupational therapy, which is actually the precursor. Um, Different than other therapeutic disciplines that are out there, like we've all heard of um, psychology, most of us have heard of physical therapy, some may be familiar with speech pathology, and One of the things that each of those disciplines somewhat have, well, maybe different than physical therapy. Physical therapy is similar to occupational therapy, but a lot of them really got their start in academia with psychology, for example. Um, There was a lot of theorists about the mind. We had Sigmund Freud, um, big thinkers that kind of had a foot in the door of academia and they had ideas and theories about how the mind works and they started creating um, a market for therapy to support specific people or specific social problems and they went out into the field and then developed you know basic infrastructure that we have already (laughs) together. Similar to nursing, occupational therapy has always been developed in the field, and we've been a majority female discipline since our beginning. And from that, there's some um, structural barriers to accessing things like academia. So uh, we as field technicians and things that's been classically termed as more women's work, didn't get the opportunity to build a science base for our approach to therapeutic work until really the 1990s. And we're being able to make up for lost ground now that women are fully, more fully embraced in academic infrastructure to actually build a science base. But I actually think that there's this amazing blessing about being a discipline that really got to develop your approaches by working with your clients and with the unknown 
and then going back to study it versus coming up with ideas and guesses beforehand and then going into the field and often been discovering that maybe that work that developed in academia wasn't quite right for the client base that you were seeking to support. So I'm choosing to see it as a blessing that we got solved in building our safe space. So what you're saying is you were getting the result and and then you've had the blessing of this is working and then okay so now we've got the opportunity to get the science to discover and actually document exactly how it's working. In a more kind of, I want to say almost like a democratic way and hopefully in a way that's more empowering and um, almost respectful with the clients that we have been working with. So I totally also avoided answering your question too about what is occupational science and what is occupational therapy? So occupational therapy really got its name coined, at least between Europe, parts of Canada, the United States and Australia really towards the turn of the century um, in the early 1900s. So in the United United States, it started about 1917. Before that, it was developed in relation to something called the moral treatment movement and the arts and crafts movement in the United States, which with the initial waves of industrialization that were coming through in the United States at that time, People within a small, short span of time went from working in the fields, on farms, and being very embedded in their daily life just to sustain their daily life. Like if you had to cook meals from everybody on the farm, if you had to make your own clothes, if you were part, you were really crafting your own life through what you did. And all of a sudden, you now had a job in a factory where you had a very holistic lifestyle previously, now you're just basically a cog machine in a machine. And everybody during that time, and it was also during you know another pandemic right on the cusp of World War One, um, speaking about you know major times of transformation for all humans at that time, there was this sense of when you got divorced from meaningful activity, your health took a downslide. So everybody that was just now a cog and machine or part of um, kind of a war effort, when they came back and they had injuries and disabilities, people needed support to get back to those meaningful activities again. And there was this intuitive sense of that when if you were connected to meaningful, purposeful activity and embedded in a community and that you were doing more than just one thing, your health would naturally improve. So at the turn of the century, having something like occupational therapy, which is that which which occupies your time and is meaningful and purposeful, was very intuitive. And there was also a way where I think a lot of more traditional midwives and before we had a westernized healthcare system and healthcare was more informal and more spiritually based, spiritually grounded. I think a lot of wise women kind of snuck in back into healthcare through occupational therapy. And so I see it as part of a lineage and a continuation of the craft and the work that women have been present for, which is often the invisible side of society, illness, injury, pain, hurting, um, helping to uh, midwife people through these transitions. It's a place that we can tap into that power. And with occupational science, we're finding ways to try to make that invisible work more visible and more real. 
And just because sometimes the feminine is more sneaky, it's difficult to quantify, and it um, often why occupational therapy has been so invisible and occupational science hasn't been as visible is because oftentimes it's the part of societies that we that we want to deny exists that um, end of life care, living with a severe mental, physical, emotional disability in a Western society, we want to um, purify ourselves and pretend all of those aspects of our community aren't present. It's painful to witness that. There's actually also a beauty that comes from invasive, facing and building community with parts of humanity that look different, that develop differently, that don't fit into standard boxes. So I really feel proud to be part of this tradition. That's profound. I think that's incredible. What made you decide to, first of all, get into occupational therapy, but then also what made you decide to go back into studying? Thank you for this question. So really, I think I have to credit one of my, uh, you know, my best friends throughout life. I was very blessed to grow up with a close cousin to me. Her name is and was Libby Chukwanda. And she was my closest cousin in age. And she came to, she entered my life when I was about eight or nine years old. And uh, she, her father was from Zimbabwe. And my my aunt met him while doing a mission trip abroad. And so she ended up being born in Seattle area and came out to stay with my family in rural Kansas at that time. We just connected right away, even though she was, I can always really, um, I have a, a kinship, I think, for folks that tend to be non, non-speaking or non-verbal. We were the closest in age, but she ended up having a rare chromosomal condition called Rett syndrome, which um, kind of, uh, it cuts off all your motor impulses. So if you want to say something, you can't fully form the thought. The more you want to do something, the more your body kind of thwarts and impedes your ability to act. And so that really stalled both her motor development and her ability to verbalize the things that she was learning and offering to the world. Um, but we really grew up together for most of our life. And she got to go to birth through three therapy services um, when we both lived together in Washington State. And when I was 10 years old, one of her first appointments, it, everything looked like kind of like the McDonald's play place. I don't know if you have that <laughs> where you live, but... It was like a fun activities that they were going down slides and playing in like ball pits. And I just really connected to all the kids. They were there because they were just like my cousin. And that was the first time I said that I wanted to be an occupational therapist because I found out who was working with her at that time. And that really stuck with me. I forgot about it later because I was so passionate about trying to make social change. I thought I was going to be a politician. <laughs> um, but when my uh, cousin passed away in uh, 20, about 2011, 2012, um, I realized that it's not an accident that that's when I really committed to becoming an occupational therapist. And I feel her as a guide in my day-to-day -day actions and my day-to-day -day life. And I found that it's actually through processing my grief that my life path has kind of developed and 
for me, like that, some of the things that I think if you're willing to face the darkness and the unknown, it can be this beautiful guide towards your future and some of the things that will shape you. Um, so kind of the pain of loss around my cousin has kind of helped create um, a purpose and a sense of meaning in my life that drove me in part towards this career. Wow, I can really feel your love and emotion and I, you have my sympathy because she sounds like she has such an incredible, amazing being. So I think it's been incredible that she came into your life and you had that close bond but she's also inspired the passion and the purpose that you have to go forth and the things that helped her, which sounds like occupational therapy helped her. And you're like, well, I want to do similar. I, I want to do more. And it was it that desire to do more that you chose to go back to study or what was the, what was the driving force to return to academia? That's a really good question. I, I imagine I don't think I'm alone for a lot of people that have had experiences with higher education that had ways that maybe felt stifling to the soul in some ways. Sometimes formal education can make you feel that you have to reformat all these different parts of yourselves and put things into neat little tight boxes that they maybe don't fit in normally. When I went to my undergraduate institution, I had some feelings of that where I think it's also part of the broader culture where I was really repressing my more feminine impulses. And I know that your work looks at archetypes, which is very interesting to think about. And I almost feel like I went on a journey with the core scientific archetype that was very masculine and very linear. And I felt like I had to shut down all these other parts of myself and different ways of knowing. It really stifled my ability, I think, to initially develop as a therapist. I wasn't connected with my intuition. I really shamed my intuition and felt like that wasn't a proper way of developing a sense of knowing. There's a lot of stigma towards the things that are more informal or kind of come from that more organic, which is part of what that arts and crafts movement that initially birthed occupational therapy was about, was really advocating for folk knowledge and the artistry that came from ordinary people creating with the tools that were at their disposal. There was something hu sacredly human about that. And when I found that when I went back to becoming a therapist, there was so much that academia couldn't have guided me in how to build a connection and build a bond with my clients. So it was actually my times as a babysitter and my times with my cousin that really could get me through some of those tough spot spots. So anyway, I had some experience of academia initially feeling quite stifling, especially to my more creative spirit. And part of that was connected to hierarchy. So going back to school, it felt like a way of reclaiming parts of myself and finding ownership to really empower these other ways of knowing and kind of integrating and having maybe some of these archetypes that play out, like be in communication with each other rather than pitting one against the other. So it was been really helpful for me to re-enter with more agency. Some of these things that previously were kind of blocking my creativity or holding me back from appreciating diverse ways of knowing, if that makes sense. It does, and you're actually really making me think because 
When I studied, I did a writing and media degree as a Bachelor of Arts, but even that was stifled with my creativity because I was doing a writing degree. But I realised that if I didn't write to what my specific lecturer really wanted or even understood, I wasn't going to get any good marks. So I really had to just squish and stifle so much of myself. I like how you said it was like a reclamation going back, you know, as yourself with more confidence and also more in your feminine and in your wisdom and kind of reclaiming the experience because I wonder if I was to go back now and study philosophy or any other kind of thing that, and I have had thoughts of it because I I do love being a student. You're graduating soon. You must feel amazing. Yeah, well, there's also this fear, too, of, I think, leaving the nest, because even, you know, like, think even if you're in some sort of prison, you can make it kind of cozy and familiar, and really facing the unknown is really terrifying, (laughs) and I think that's where we do try to create these almost artificial sense of certainty by putting boxes around things that can't easily be boxed, and so I think... I can feel, you know, some trepidation of like jumping out and really facing that, you know, we um we are sort of co-creating the new structures that we're living in and it is better like I hope that I can create a spirit to where you don't not everyone necessarily needs to go back to school to reclaim those parts of themselves and um for some reason I I definitely did there was something really there was really a strong drive internally that I think was parts of my younger selves that needed that reinsurance. And I needed to prove to myself I could do something for some reason. And I'm still kind of learning what that is. It it is a really important era that we're going into and finding that confidence to be an active creator and giving yourself full permission to express whether or not you're in these systems or outside of them. More than likely in not, we are in structures that are impeding and limiting our creativity in some way. And we have so many tools now, like I think that you're experiencing exploring things online, even finding a small space in your own life where you can reclaim those parts of yourself and express them. Somehow throughout the day, I think these tiny, delightful little rebellions are so significant to our souls reclaiming our humanness, which I think is part of that arts and crafts movement, that roots of occupational therapy, the sense that you can reclaim your humanness and even these really small parts of the day that you may not realize are actually very meaningful and how you take care of yourself and how you're embedded in your community, it's important to find your agency in those experiences. So it's like not just dismissing something as like, oh, my, this is a cutesy little hobby. I like scrapbooking, um, you know, and you just kind of dismiss it or give yourself yet another label. And you don't actually see the therapeutic benefits of what's happening emotionally, energetically, physically. I mean, I like that. We we do need to restructure how we see all these aspects of our lives and, and bringing a bit more positivity into it. How embedded with meaning they are, too. Um, we end up dismissing these things that seem so ordinary. And really, it's where those day-to-day rituals take place that end up creating this tapestry of the world around us. In occupational science, we have something called transactionalism, which is 
where you view the systems that you live within, um, they're not necessarily self-contained. They are these open systems. So as we are acting as agents in our environments, we're having an impact on the environment and all the different systems around us as it's having an impact on us. So even in those ordinary little things that you do as part of your day of how you make tea or how you go about scrapbooking, those are almost the little atoms that end up put, coming together and forming the shape of your life and how it's evolving around you. So those little tiny choices that you make, they're really imbued with so much more significance than I think we often acknowledge and give them credit for. And you can really notice them, especially when you lose them, like from having an illness injury or disability emerge in your life. And you, it, it almost challenges you to adapt and see what you might've been taking for granted or, or how you can reconnect to those parts of yourself. So that's really what this whole mindset of occupational therapy or occupational science, that if something changes, it's not that you can't do something that you didn't before. It's that we have to be open to doing them differently and seeing from a different perspective. And I think I wouldn't, I would be curious, even in your perspective, like that so much distills, I think what transformation is, is that we often are challenged by some force in the universe to think of, you know, being, existing, navigating something differently. Well, at the same time, that keeps something kind of the same thrust, but it's in that journey of transformation that we discover so much that's meaningful about life. And I think it's just such an important conversation to have, like, at that grassroots level. Like, if we actually understand that the little things and the things that brings us a little bit of joy and these things are so important to us, and then if something happens that it's taken away from us, we have to find ways to bring it back because we need to have that conversation of, hey, that was important to me, that habit's important to me, that stress relief. And, and like actually really looking at our lives and going, you know, when I go for a walk, it's not just exercise, it's such and such. But then if you can't go for the walk anymore, you really want to bring back that same essence of what it was gifting you and then having to find a new way to get that back. I mean, this is alchemy, you know, that transformation, exactly what you were saying. I really am feeling deeply humbled right now because there's so part, so much parts of my life where I just go, you know, these are the little quirks and little things that I, I do and take for granted and that do bring me a lot of joy. I don't acknowledge it. You know, I don't even think about it. I just go forth. But if I had to, you know, face a major life change, I mean, helping people go through that spiral I mean you've got an incredible job I mean the truth is that I mean what do I want to say I, the all these forces they're just so much bigger than I think than almost any living thing that it is it's it's humbling and it's actually just a gift to bear presence to the the richness that comes from I, I wish that everybody was blessed to have these experiences. I think a lot of people that maybe grew up on farms or worked in the military, those of us that all that have signed up to be close to some of the darkness of life, I would be surprised if we have some similar experiences that make you, sometimes it feels just like a little bit different than ordinary people, but like 
the truth is like, I love my job so much. It feels so meaningful to be present with people during these major shifts in their lives. And on almost a selfish level, I just gained so much from being able to bear witness and be present with people during these transitions. Um, it gives you um, a fast forward glimpse on choices that what you can, I guess it's like, if you ever get the opportunity to be closer to these forces, don't be surprised how abundantly they can, they can bless you. And it's, I think it's in the things that we avoid that have the biggest blessings in our life. If we are open to the wisdom that they have to share, which is, I think, being open to something beyond the fear, right? Isn't that, that seems to be a big thing for all of us that are going through a stages transformation as we have to find a bravery that's bigger than the fear. And then we can learn what it has to teach us. And we keep kind of moving forward with a better, I think maybe understanding what some of our soul desires are, which um, often transcend these material things. So I, I guess I'm now feeling the sense of how much, how heavy death is in this conversation, because I think death is the ultimate transformer. And that's the best thing that I think I've gained from being in a relationship with this discipline, which I've obviously like, now this is helpful to have that context of that. It was really the passing of my cousin that really kind of guided me towards my life purpose. So many people are in avoidance of that force. Like if it's a tarot card and maybe you get the death card or something and it doesn't mean the end, right? It just means transformation. So if you're open to that wisdom, man, it is such a, an amazing gift. I often say to my clients and to people like get comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's in the discomfort and even at times the suffering that you shift so much stuff and you can completely transform and change your life. But it's also becoming comfortable with death. And, you know, I myself from the ages of 15 to the ages of 21, I just went to that many funerals and in one year alone every school holiday someone died I I like bang 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 I spent my school holidays going to funerals then my mum got cancer and survived but my dad got cancer and passed away and I was only 21 so I'm like okay I don't want to I don't want to be lying on my deathbed and have a multitude of regrets and my life might not be as traditional as what everyone else says but like I truly have no regrets. I've got things that I want to experience and things that I'm I'm working on. But if I die tomorrow, I'm not going to fear it, you, you know, because I'm actually quite content with my life. As horrifying as it was to go through the emotions when I was a teenager or and a, a young woman, it freed me in a way from a, a lot of that being uncomfortable with it. And so many people are, like when my dad was passing away, you just lose so many friends because they don't know what to say and they don't know what to do and being around someone who's dying can be so discomforting and then um, before you know it, you haven't spoke to the person in 12 months and there's also that this distance of like, well, you weren't really there when everything was going on and you still haven't really approached us. I don't really think you were who I meant you to be. And you, so, I mean, just just dissolves all kinds of people you, you know in people's lives and they can have that discomfort you know that did they just disappear but you've turned it into something that you're so comfortable with 
Well, it's interesting. Like, I wonder, just in reflecting on what you're sharing as well, it, it makes me sense of, like, I spend a lot of time, I'm very interested in, in history, and that's one of the things I love about, currently I'm working in geriatrics and hospitals and, and things at different stages of life transformation and whatnot, and part of that is it is living history and you see, you know, all the people that are still carrying so many different experiences and how they navigate, you know, living in an era, your, your entire adult life. If you can imagine how much, you know, civilization has changed since the 1920s and things like that. And we still have people that are navigating so many major context changes and think about how the world was for most people even a hundred years ago it would more closely reflect what the experience that you shared it's actually a weird and different thing in the collective human experience how isolated most contemporary people are from the realities of death and I think that is a big part of why the COVID-19 pandemic was so destabilizing for so many that are in a geared set towards an avoidance pattern around death. Most cultures have built into their community and ritualization a, if not <laughs> weekly or daily acknowledgement of death, at least a seasonal one. Um, I always acknowledge the clients I work with, like the reason that we have holidays in the seasonal hemispheres is because that is a major time of the portal of people passing from um, illness, injury, disability. We had to come together during these times to support each other through the dark months. I mean, we've just been talking a lot about death, but at the same time, if somebody has family members or friends and they've experienced a really bad accident, but we also have to be comfortable with people who are going through the midst of these massive, you know, transitional times where then their life no longer looks like what it is. They have to be supported by someone like yourself to then bring meaning back into their life. But if you could speak to the loved ones or the friends of people who are like going through this, what's some of the advice that you could give to somebody who might be experiencing discomfort with my healthy friend or my healthy family member has now had a massive accident and they're in a wheelchair or suddenly sick in bed or they're going through something like that and they're feeling uncomfortable. How could they more support their loved ones? Oh, good question. And I think probably the most meaningful thing that we can do is um, all of us to sort of humble and humanize each other in this process and to meet each other in our messiness. I think that part in that previous reflection, I never fully tangentially got to it, but I wonder how many of us in our souls are actually longing for and almost miss the companionship with this fourth of death and grief and dying because, you know, spending how many years I've spent with, in my mind, she's kind of a, I have her as more of a her type energy type. You might be surprised that part of you misses connecting with this force of transition and if it greets you or a loved one it is another opportunity in my mind to connect with something that's divinely beautiful beyond our understanding or impulse towards control so if you can humanize with your friends and your loved ones and just bear witness to this force that is bigger than us and ask what it has to teach you 
and that oftentimes, more likely than not, you have almost something more to gain from your friend than they have from you. That these glimpses into our humanness and our ability to find connection and to understand that your friend, your loved one is still that same, even more deeper human expression like Leo the R, more likely connected to a different level of wisdom. If you're open to joining them there, you might be surprised by how much your life can transform and be enhanced in its depth and meaning by maintaining the relationship rather than running away from it. I actually think it's like such a powerful spiritual force that we're almost afraid of the transformative potential that we have from being in proximity to it. But my guess is that your life will be deeply enhanced by virtue of maintaining and growing in a relationship together. They just are meeting you just in their humanness, maintaining a relationship just like you otherwise would, while acknowledging the extent of the difficulties that is what makes us human, and finding ways that you can support each other. But don't be surprised if you almost gain more from the experience than you have to offer, if that makes sense. It's so true. Like, I'm just reflecting right now, anyone's disabilities, anyone's illnesses, by by putting the effort in to humanize them and maintain their relationship, you have to change in some form or shape, whether or not you are more helpful, um, maybe you need to be there more emotionally, maybe you need to become more detached if they're going to be like angry at you. Like no matter what it is, you're going to go through that transformation and you know you become better for it. It just totally changes your perspective of the world. And that's what I kind of like to hopefully have like maybe a full circle movement of what I think the gift is that occupational therapy, occupational science got to develop in the field first and got to develop in partnership with people experiencing new and ever evolving states of disability and humanness means that you're open to this unknown, you're open to this discovery and this responsiveness of being a human with another human and thinking, what does this have to teach me? When whatever we tried before, all of a sudden isn't working in this context because um, now we can't move your right arm and now you lost vision in your right eye and now we have a mild cognitive impairment. It is where when they say necessity is the mother and invention or when things break down, that's really where our new things are created. And if you're open to this creative spark and this potential of having a almost like, I guess I'm thinking of the tarot card deck from this, but like that fool's card of like, let's take the leap. Let's sort of discover. That's kind of what I was hearing in, in conversing with your friend is that you're taking this leap and this impulse. It's almost like being a child again. If you remember what it was like to make friends for the first time in your life and not knowing how people would react and where when you're greeting somebody with a completely different experience of life, it has that um, begin that beginner's mindset of being open. And it, to me, it's so liberating because the people that I get to work with every day, there's no artifice or trying to put off a certain vibe. And that's what I loved about growing up with my cousin Libby is we were just full kids together and I knew that she, because she wasn't verbal, she wasn't lying to me. And it was so genuine. The emotions she had for me and what I had for her and the way that we were connected 
was a truly honest and pure experience. And I think so often that's what letting people with disabilities, illness, um, injuries, differences, the atypical humans, if you let them have interaction with their life, it's just, it's such a beautiful, raw, potent connection to the human experience. And I don't want to exceptionalize that. It's just really that human, but being able to take that artifice, that mask off of fakeness as a human being, oh man, like death will teach you that, illness will teach you that, all of these things, you'll let everything that was false fade away and you're left kind of with yourself and then you can grow from there in a really powerful way. Just having more compassion as well, like having this conversation. If I do see somebody who has a a disability or I know someone that's had something, an illness or something that's come on, they have they had this whole life with their habits and all the things that they used to do and whether they scrapbooked or jigsaw puzzled or gamed or things and then something happens and that's taken away from them you know they are in that transitionary period and is there anything I can do to hold space while they still have to bring that enrichment back into their life it's a social problem that where I hope, I remember um, learning about a little bit your body of work too that talks about way showers and things that are an impotent for us as a society that can give us glimpses about, I think sometimes these experiences, the darker sides of humanity do come about and do reveal themselves as a path towards way showing. So like lately with the clients that I've been working with that in the in the cultural context that I come from in the United States, there's a immense amount of shame around needing help. United States is very tends to be hyper individualistic as a culture and we tend to put stigma on people with disabilities and assume that you're, you know, a burden to society, you're a burden to your kids or these things. And I try to challenge them to think about the gift that they're giving humanity right now, because often a lot of people won't face this part of life, even though it used to be something we developed with very intimately throughout our life and previous, you know, parts of our cultures. But now, A lot of people, unless you have a close loved one or somebody that you care about experience these things, they'll never get the wisdom of why it might matter to buy a house without stairs, you know, if you're going towards retirement age or thinking about the equipment or thinking about what kind of social support system do we actually want to innovate together? What, as a culture, what does it mean to build health care or an inclusive community? How do we actually put our values really into action? And it's through interacting with our parts of our communities that are experiencing where there are gaps in our social safety net, where we aren't really showing up for and practicing a lot of the things that we preach. This gives us some way showing towards what kind of future do we want to build for our children. It is through interacting with these darker forces that we can actually find wisdom and find things that could actually work and to be the answer. So we need to show up and and listen to people with disabilities and injury and illness and be responsive to what they need in that moment. And I think of it like I'm building my karmic 401k and it's my job to listen to my clients way more than it is to have solutions and to innovate something together. And so like with you're asking about your friends that maybe are experiencing a big life change and not being able to move their body in the same way or have access to their mind. 
being able to show up and brainstorm together what can support them and be resourcing through a hard time. Just like I feel like it might be sort of intuitive for a lot of people. They can imagine what it's like to have friends that maybe it has a miscarriage or something. That grief process of having that visit you. It's kind of a similar thing that you would think about your friend that lost their leg or lost their ability to have vision. How would you show up and support that person? What would you want to think about? And you would kind of let them sort of lead the way and guide the path to a solution. But we can use that also as fodder to brainstorm. What sort of society should we create together so that this maybe doesn't have to be an experience for everyone that has this challenge that comes up? Um, a great one is universal design, where if we think about all of the different buildings and the structures or even like an online course you put together, how can you make it as maximally accessible for the folks that you might want to participate? These are great questions that can help us build new solutions that truly can work for everyone because we're open to listening. I love this conversation. And I think that the key to going forth is to actually just go and have those conversations and talk with people, talk with the friends who are going through these, like, how can I support? I thought about that shame of asking for help. If we actually approached and had those open conversations, we could take the shame away and just reassure. I thought it was kind of interesting because I've, I've visited the America three times. Every time, very, very gracious with tourists and and very generous. If I asked any questions, they did not hesitate to answer. Had not one bad experience with all the different places that I, I visited. Even San Francisco, everyone would open open the door, and then they hold the door for the person behind them. And I'm just like, they don't do that in my country. <laughs> no one holds the door for the person behind them. And I was like, really going, okay. So there is so much beauty within America for for being so helpful and coming together in community that there needs to be more conversation about how you can a ask for help but b if anyone is listening to this and they have a friend that's going through any kind of illness or disability don't be scared to go up to them and say you know how can I help clean and as you said brainstorm be present to that just sit with the discomfort inside yourself and think about well there, I guess sometimes I, I do that, like try to treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And there's some risk in that too, really. It is also important to learn and treat people the way that they want to be treated because not everyone's the same. And it's important to pay attention to that discomfort inside yourself is a part of you that also kind of needs some support in facing these things that are part of not just your friend or your community, we're all connected to together. And the more that we can start to face these things that make us feel uncomfortable, the more that we can learn and grow from them. Because I think the more we repress them, the more they're going to get bigger and bigger until <laughs> we actually do. So we almost get these little nudges where they're almost like a tiny discomfort to <laughs> sit with. And it's be when it becomes a monolith, and you see that over and over again in the path of journey of like disability, for example, like somebody's open to face the possibility of maybe having a little bit more imbalance than they did 10 years prior. And they're like, you know what? I think, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to use the cane. I don't really care if anybody makes fun of me. Maybe they'll make fun of me. But, you know, I'm just feeling a little unsteady and it's making me a little uncomfortable and I'm going to like take on some support. 
those folks that have that orientation to it and they're willing to face it when it's a tiny discomfort, you just have a smoother and more interesting path in life and more openings than if you like really want to die on the hill. I don't need a walker. I don't need a walker. And then the universe is just going to keep saying, are you sure you don't? Are you sure you don't? Are you sure you don't? Until it gets escalated up and up and up. And that's the thing I'm hoping that I'm learning and taking in the wisdom of my clients is I try to have, lead with that humility, that some of that discomfort it isn't even your friend, it might even be yours. And the more you can make friends with your own future, possibly disabled person, the better they will guide you into like a really joyous aging process, I believe. I think that's so wise. And it's funny because I was having this discussion with my sister only a week, maybe two weeks ago. I'm the youngest of five children and um, out of the five children, my sister's the only one to have children. So there's only two girls. I am like, this will be the end of our lineage. So the name will die out because none, none of the males and my uncle, they had girls and everything. And I was sitting there going, I am not going to become cantankerous and grumpy and stuck with staying in my house. So I'm setting a game plan that when I get to 70, I'm going to assess my life. And if I feel like I'm becoming too hermit-like, which can be a thing, I'm going to just put myself in a, in a, in a retirement village. That is a, a reality. And I don't, like, I want to be comfortable with it and ask myself these really hard questions. I feel like if we can have those, you know, uncomfortable conversations about our own age, you kind of face that your own side so like a lot of our discomfort with people with disabilities and things like that as a culture is the discomfort with our own frailty and our own vulnerability as human beings I guess as uncomfortable as that is it's always going to be that case I think that part of it it's like the little bit the arrogance of the titanic you want to be careful about how much you taunt nature in the sense and that i think that there is a feebleness and there is a frailty to the human experience to be in that state of vulnerability and recognizing it it just has a way of infinitely making more choice and i think more beauty the fact that life is fragile and that it's temporary and that we can go at any time um and that there's so much beyond our control in this it is an overwhelming prospect within that then comes the context in which everything can be appreciated and there is a beauty in how almost everything unfolds and you then can create the things around you become sacred because of this fact and that it is a miracle everything that exists and it's very refined shape and that everything that exists is never going to fully exist again in its same form i find that the closest that you're a friend and recognize that reality the more too it's kind of ironic it seems like those folks that stick around and are thinking about that and are willing to think about the realities of death and what you'd want to do to adjust they end up staying around the longest (laughs) those that are the most afraid of death can like end up getting so close towards it I think she likes to be known so well the more you reject it the closer it will come to visit you but I I love um, that notion of thinking in advance. I find that that is something I've seen routinely bless my clients' lives. The more they're attuned and open to what their, I guess, 
in some ways they call it like cronehood or something ever since I was very young I've always had a kinship with that um I'm have part Icelandic and it's a big part of Icelandic culture having the sage wise woman that can counsel um legions of men seafaring that need that hope from to be able to make it through many weathered storms and to make it to an old age in Iceland especially as a woman is like a very esteemed thing so I've always held that there's something really um amazing about making it to older age and having that it's something I live in honor and reverence for and it's very spiritually perplexing to me those that um have a degree of shame about aging. And I truly believe that it is a um, it is a privilege denied to many and it's not something to take for granted, this pathway of getting older and the men like that you're thinking ahead about it, that's something that will continue to bless you the more that you're open to being in touch with that part of you. I know that from my studying and online stalking that you are you've got your own podcast that you're starting but you also are launching a course the course is going to be for other occupational therapists you know what and I am as I am about I'm defending my degree later this month and so that's creating some more space to to let creative problem solving come in so I'm definitely thinking about what are ways that I maybe can also introduce a broader demographic of people to this perspective of occupational science which I guess in some ways hasn't come up too much but occupational science is the sense of like the study of humans through what they do and how they shape their environment, their identities and their sense of self in relationship to the environment and how we adapt to it. So before I actually became an occupational therapist, I studied evolutionary biology and evolutionary theory. And I've always been very interested in what evolutionary biology means in relationship to human beings and how we adapt. So occupational science is kind of like, how do we adapt as humans and lifetime and how can we understand and appreciate that complexity and within their occupational therapy how do we leverage that force for constructive outcomes and for um, helping people go through transitions in ways that they can be more supported and have more um, optimal outcomes than rather than letting the worst case scenario happen so that's kind of what occupational science is and it has a, a very optimistic take about how we can adapt to challenges and create constructive problem solving. I found often in academia, one of the things that's been quite fashionable in the last couple decades is what's called like structural studies or critical inquiry, which is very important, where we can kind of critique some of our core assumptions about different disciplines and social structures and be very critical about, you know, are these structures designed to help everyone or just a few people at the top? And for me, occupational science has been this answer of, can we face what might be broken about some of our current systems, but have this idea of what can we do with our agency and how can we brainstorm and problem solve better solutions mindfully to go from that step of just critique and protest towards cultivating and creating in a mindful way? knowing that it might be messy, it might not be perfect, but um, there is something that's much more positive and empowering about critiquing and acknowledging the structure of something and then also answering, well, what can we do to support each other to adapt and do something positive? What can we create 
out of the, these lemon lemons that we've been given, how do we make lemonade? So anyway, starting to envision also creating some supports for the general public. It is a science that many occupational scientists, occupational therapists haven't been exposed to. So that's the initial course that's there. Um, but I'm considering creating something also for the general public as well, because I think it is a great perspective for everybody to know about. But I know in the United States, like, we make, in order to get access to occupational therapy, for example, it can be a million hoops you have to jump through. It's not something that's just given out. We don't talk about these things. So thank you for bringing some visibility that as invisible as my clients are in my work is to the point that most people don't know what we do. I feel like so many are um, kind of suffering in silence and are kind of alone because there isn't much talk happening about these realities that really most people that if you have older parents or you have ch children that, you know, disabilities are more and more common and mental health crises are happening it is, um, we should bring these conversations more to the light. So thank you for acknowledging that and supporting the potential of this work. And certainly if that is going to happen, it will be, um, and the podcast that you mentioned below will be one of the first hubs to connect with some of these conversations going into this new year. For anyone that would like to connect with you further, is your podcast the best way to find you? And if so, what is its name? Yeah, so the podcast is called Engaging Occupational Science. So I'm hoping to um, highlight conversations with other occupational scientists, other occupational therapists to start engaging with this body of work. Um, so hopefully it is engaging for you as listeners to consider some of these ideas and what the science of kind of engaging with these unknown potentials of how humans adapt to challenges. Um, one of the beauties of occupational science is that it is a basic science and it's something that's just about human beings in general and our like general potential to take on creative challenges. So it's not niche down only being illness, injury, pathology, healthcare, those systems. It's actually a perspective for everyone to consider and to enjoy. So I would love to invite every sort of audience to engage in these conversations and to reach out sort of support. You're also welcome to find me on Facebook, um, Josie Jarvis OT. And the podcast will have a great link tree as well. Sorry about that weird noise. <laughs> My um, headphone charred there. Um, but thank you so much, Jess. This was a wonderful conversation. And I hope that you guys all can just give yourself permission to, to be human and to let that uncomfortable part of yourself maybe guide you into this human that you're maybe here to become and hopefully connect you to more universally to this human experience and know that you're not alone in these things. Most of us need a lot more courage to actually bring this voice out into the public. And uh, Jess, you helped create a spark for that. So I just really thank you for being open to these conversations and being with people that are on these deep phases of transformation. It, it, it can be lonely and it takes some bravery to be somebody that's willing to reach out to do that. And I hope that it's contagious too, that everyone even from this conversation will maybe feel a little bit more emboldened to connect with their relatives, their loved ones, and the parts of themselves that need some more support during tougher times. It's been a fabulous conversation. My takeaway is to be more grateful for the little things in my habits and seeing them as positive things. And, you know, even some of my quirks that I do, like Sudokus and stuff, like, you know, seeing the therapeutic benefits, not just my habits, 
also continue my love of being uncomfortable you, you know because if I get comfortable with being uncomfortable I see it as a, a barometer of what spirit's wanting to show me and the more kind of it's a bit uncomfortable and it's just running away I'm like okay spirit's showing me something and if I'm looking at somebody who you know my family death disability or anything you know don't be afraid to have the conversations to go and talk with them you know, yeah. workshop if there anyone who can help, you know, and get comfortable. And I will say too, you know, it is helpful. We do partner with families, with loved ones, with friends. Oftentimes you do work with your loved ones and whatnot, but they at times might need an advocate and an ally and a support system. And if you worry that your loved one isn't getting the care and the attention that they need, advocating for them and with them is not just creating a better life and experience for your loved one, but it's helping us build a society that is better for everyone. Because really, I would love to envision this throughout the world. We need more of a care economy that is built about adding on to each other's lives and showing up to the most pressing needs. And when we do have episodes of pain, injury, hurt, and harm, it can guide us to the infrastructure that we really need to be building throughout the world that is responsive and caring to the human condition. So if you have that impulse, follow it, join with it. Let us guide us to the society that we need to build together for and with each other, where we should have economy where we're served based on our capacity to serve rather than to take. And right now we're not always learning the right lessons that we need from the most vulnerable in society. We shouldn't be taking from the most vulnerable. We should be answering to the call and showing up and being in service and really building a world that we want to leave for our children. If you're terrified of where your children could end up in 75 years, that's a call that we need to come together and envision a better system and support that by usually answering the calls from the needs of the most vulnerable. Listen to that voice. It's guiding towards you, towards something profound. Wow. Well, Josie, I have loved this conversation. I am so vastly impressed. I'm now in love with occupational therapists. I think your vocation is profound. I hope that my listeners fall in love with your vocation and it, like even have a greater understanding of what it is. And if they do have a family member or friend, find a great occupational therapist to help you transition through all of it. Let's build that society and that future that is more care economies. And I'm excited to share with you too, some of the most amazing OT work and occupational science work is happening in Australia. And I'm so excited to actually share specifically that body of work more internationally on this podcast. So your um, your cultural context has already been part of giving an amazing gift to the world in this regard. So thank you for continuing that. Well, I can't claim any... Um, well, any... you're opening the conversation to spread <laughs> beyond its current things. So, like, I guess just thank you for creating an opening for this to be more known about. Because now it's more visible in this small way. And we just need to open these doors to the uncomfortable parts to build out this. So, again, thank you so much for welcoming me on here. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Thank you. And... For everyone listening, I will put all the details of how to connect with Josie below.